listen to is the voice that you will live by. This principle works its way out throughout the Bible, starting in the very first pages. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were confronted with two voices, the voice of God and the voice of the serpent. And you know how that story ended. And they listened to the voice of the serpent over, over the voice of God. And thus we find ourselves in the world in which we live. But not just in general, but specifically in the book of 1 Samuel, that principle, that theme is a steady thread that runs throughout the entire book. Eli is talking to his two sons. He's the priest in Israel at the time, and his sons help him in the tabernacle. But his sons are very immoral, ungodly, having sexual affairs with the women who come to the tabernacle actually to worship. So he confronts them in their sin. But here's what the Bible says, 1 Samuel 2.25, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. The people of Israel wanted a king, which in and of itself wasn't bad, but they wanted a king like all the other nations. And so they asked Samuel, in fact, demanded from Samuel that he would give them a king. And they wanted the wrong kind of king. And though Samuel tried to warn them, 1 Samuel 8, 19 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, But you shall give us a king over us. A second time, Samuel this time warns both the people and the king, who is King Saul, that in 1 Samuel 12, 25, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and against your king. All of those disobedient people who wouldn't listen to the voice of God's word through the prophet Samuel are contrasted with his life. See, Saul is someone who, and you're going to find in our text, would not listen to the voice of God. But Samuel did. In fact, when he's a little boy in the temple after his mother Hannah had dedicated him to the Lord... Three times God comes to him, and three times Samuel hears God's voice. And his life is marked from the very outset of his ministry to obedience to the voice of God, whereas Eli is the opposite. You know, as Christians, I don't think it's hard to convince you from the Bible that God wants you to obey the voice that comes from Scripture and, most of all, from his Son, In fact, John 10, in Jesus' Good Shepherd discourse, here's what he said to us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. A couple verses, just a few verses later in chapter 10, it says this. But a stranger's voice they will not hear, and they will flee from him. Put it together in a brief synopsis, and here's what you get. You have Christ's voice and you should follow it. You have culture's voice, strangers, and you flee from it. It sounds easy, doesn't it? Follow Christ's voice, flee culture voice, until you try to do it as a believer every single day. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that in our culture, in the day in which we live in American society, we are inundated with the voice of strangers that seek to silence the voice of God in our individual lives and in our families and in our churches. They want us to ignore the voice of God and in its place put the voice of power politics, the voice of sexual freedom and revolution in our culture. 
the voice of expressive individualism, humanistic psychology, the voice of Hollywood and celebrity actors and actresses and sports heroes and popular musicians and singers. They want to silence the voice of God with the voice of racial division, the voice of materialism, and on and on and on we could go in our culture. There is no shortage of alternative voices that you and your young people can engage in and listen to. But I would tell you this, outside the voice of God, they are there to tear you down, destroy your life, and totally exploit your total commitment to God. So the question this morning from the text, and I want to say it right up front this morning, is whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are your children? And I mean small children, elementary age children, and your teenagers. Single adults, whose voice are you listening to today? Because the voice you listen to is the voice you will listen, live by. So I want to take a look today, in the minutes we have left, at King Saul's life. Because he heard voices. He certainly heard the voice of God. But there are two other voices in this text that are very clearly marked out that he listened to. In fact, what we're going to see is he listened to them over the voice of God. And it ruined his life. It split the kingdom and ultimately caused his death. I call them voice choices. See, everyone in here this morning has made a voice choice. You have. But the question is, which one? So in contrast to, Saul, to Samuel, I want to look at the voice choices that Saul has made and unpack these two one at a time and ask you to tell yourself or ask yourself along the way the question, which voice are you listening to and thereby living by? Voice, you can look for it in the text. If you're writing notes today, circle it in the text if you would. Voice is a key theme. It's in verse 19, verse 20, verse 22, and verse 24. And actually, even though the word voice isn't used in it, there are a number of other times that it's referred to. The primary voice, as it should be in the Bible, is God's voice. And here's what God's voice, when it comes to King Saul, says for him to do. In fact, this text calls it a mission. Saul has been given a mission from God, and you can see what that mission is in the first three verses. He is to destroy Amalek. He is to kill everybody, not one person left over. And the reason is that God would give him such a harsh command is found in Exodus 17. Don't look there. But back when Israel was coming out of the wilderness and entering the promised land... Amalek attacked them from the rear. Now you would say, now what's the big deal if you're going to fight? Because back then they even had warfare standards. Everybody who was a woman, an elderly person, or disabled always walked in the rear of the line because they were much slower and they had to be taken care of. And many times the women had children and so on. So they were all in the back. So to attack the rear of a group of people was to talk, t- talk, or attack their weakest place with women and children and elderly people and disabled people. It was really prohibited. And God says, because Amalek did that, that I'm going to wipe them out. And so King Saul's mission was to attack them. And there was the Hebrew word harem. It means the ban. And it's translated in our text to devote to destruction. 
All of it was to be destroyed. Not one animal, not one person, not one thing was to be left alive. And you don't realize how important this is until you read the book of Esther. Because Agag was spared and some of his line was spared. That Amalek problem all the way through the book of Esther because Haman is an Agagite. Haman, who tried to kill Mordecai and Esther, is residual of Saul's disobedience. So what is Saul uh, told to do? Kill all the people, kill Agag, and kill all the animals. What does he do? He keeps Agag alive, verses 8 and 9. Would you look there? Verses 8 and 9 says that Agag is alive and... King Saul spared the best of the livestock. And in verse 9 it says, he spared all that was good. Now remember back in this culture, not like today, they didn't have dollars and coins and money so much. Although they had a little bit of that. But real wealth back then, especially in an agrarian culture, was livestock. If you had a lot of animals, you were rich. So Saul does this. He spares the king. He spares all the animals, and basically what he's doing is saving the best capital and all the, can I say, the kudos of everybody else by sparing the king so that he can tell everybody how great he is. So he's clearly disobedient because God gave instructions that nothing was to be spared, and he spared a number of things. So why would God command him this, and why did he disobey if the instructions were so clear? God is saying to King Saul, listen, I want you to go and I want you to fight the Amalekites, but I don't want you to fight like the Amalekites. You see, the Amalekites, the reason that they go to war is so that they can gain profit, that they can get wealth. I don't want you to do that. I want you to wipe them out because of justice. I want to bring my judgment on them for how they killed our people. So God says, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to go in there to make a profit because every other nation when they go to war does it to accrue wealth. I want you to be different than them. Saul, I don't want you to be a king like the nations and I don't want Israel to be a nation like the other people around them. I want you to be different, committed in a different way. But Saul's disobedience to God and disobeying exactly what God told him to do is indication of this. Saul had already in his heart become an Amalekite. He was already like the other kings. He was already like the other nations. And in chapter 15, verses 19 and 22, it states that Saul disobeyed, listen, twice. He disobeys the voice of the Lord. Why was he able to do that? And let me ask you, why are you able to do that? You know, it's not because the scripture is unclear. As Christians, it's not because we don't know what the commandments say. It's not because we don't understand what God is asking us to do. But why is it when the instructions are clear, the mission is very not hard at all to understand? Why is it that we disobey? Why did Saul disobey? Did you notice before Samuel, who comes to find Saul, ever says a word in the text... Saul greets him before he's ever asked anything, and here's what he says. Ready? Verse 13. It says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And we say, say what? I mean, he wants Samuel to know right off the bat, listen, you know that thing God told me to do? I did it. And we have just read 
that he didn't do those things. He didn't do them. In fact, it's crazy, but the dialogue repeats itself a few verses later in verse 16. Look what it says. Samuel says, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? What is Saul's answer? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. How is it possible that he can say that? Add this evidence to it. Verse 14 says, Samuel says, then why is it that I hear the sheep and the oxen bleeding in the background? Now, you can hear the animals. They're close enough that they can see them and hear them. And Saul still says, I've obeyed the Lord. How is it possible? I'll tell you how. For Saul and for us, self-deception. The voice of self. See, that? can I tell you? That is the number one competing voice for the voice of God is your own voice. See, it's possible, this text teaches us, it's possible to hear God's voice and not really hear it. You know, self-deception is just that. It's the possibility to know something and yet not know it because you don't want to know it. It is our unlimited capacity for self-deception that silences out the voice of God. Someone has said that self-deception is not the worst thing you can do, but it can lead us to do the very worst things that we can do. So how does Saul say that stuff? How does he repeat twice, I have obeyed the voice of God? You know how? Because here's what it means. It means that he does know that he didn't do it. He knows he didn't do it. But he doesn't want to know it. Self-deception is the ability to justify yourselves about things that you know that you're doing that are not right. For example... Take a father whose son is a great athlete, and he's really, really proud of him. He's the best athlete in the entire school where he attends. But what is also true about this boy is that he is in trouble all the time. In fact, he's sent to the principal's office on numerous occasions. And every time his son is accused of doing something wrong, here's what his dad does. His dad goes up to the school... He barges into the principal's office and he begins to exclaim that the reason why his son is in trouble is because the teacher is incompetent and the other kids are lying about him and everybody is persecuting him. See, he really, he knows his son is wrong because what he knows is he's seen him do things at home, not just at school. He knows he's wrong, but he doesn't want to know. You know why? Because we are really good. We are really good at hiding the truth about things that cause us the most pain. I read a disturbing true story this week in preparation for this message. It took place in World War II in one of the first towns that were liberated by the Allies in Germany that had a concentration camp was a town called Ordorf. And when the Allied soldiers got to the concentration camp, there were amazingly some prisoners that were still alive there. And what the soldiers found out after shortly arriving there is that the German soldiers, before they vacated, knowing the Allies were coming, they tried to get rid of the evidence of killing all the people that they had done. So they had dug up 2,000 bodies that they had buried in a mass grave, 
And they had put them into the incinerators and the ovens of the incinerators, trying to get rid of them so no one would know what had been done. But when the Americans got there, the Germans had had to leave way sooner than they thought they would. And when they came into the incinerators and saw the ovens inside those rooms, 1,900 out of the 2,000 bodies were still stacked up. It completely astounded the military. Two hours later, George Patton, General George Patton himself, whose nickname was Blood and Guts, went in and looked in the rooms where the ovens was and saw the bodies and immediately vomited. Do you get this? General George Patton, Blood and Guts, vomited. The remaining prisoners that were there, George Patton questioned himself. And in his questioning, he found out this information that the soldiers that had done all of this went into the town almost every night. They would go into town and they would be getting drunk and they would find women and all the horrible things that they did. And they went in there every single night over the last number of years. So Patton, after hearing all that, went into the town and he asked the town people, did you know anything about any of this? And to a person, the town people said, no, we don't know anything about it. And Patton said, well, whether you do or you really don't, here's what you're going to do tomorrow. You're going to get up and every one of you, including the mayor and his wife, are going to go into the camp and you are going to bury every one of those individual bodies in a respectful grave, every single one of them, and you won't be done until it's finished. And they did it. That night, as they came home, the mayor and his wife hung themselves. And they left a note that said these few words. We didn't know, but we knew. See, that's us. See, we have a propensity, propensity, don't we? We have an unlimited capacity to hide the truths that we know are wrong And that's why someone has said the worst deception is self-deception. Self-deception, listening to the voice of self, enables us, even as decent people, to do some of the worst possible things out there. Why? Because we deceive ourselves. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I knew there was something wrong in my body, but I didn't go to the doctor because I didn't want to know. We do that, don't we? See, we have a sickness. We have a sin going on in our lives. See, we just don't want to know about it. And sometimes, listen, maybe the worst part of it, and sometimes we hide it behind religiosity. Did you hear what Saul says when Samuel says, why did you do this? Why did you spare all these things? Here's what he says. Well, here's what we are going to do. When we spared all these things, you know why? Because we were going to sacrifice them to God. Do you hear that? It's like, hey, we'd say today, 21st century vernacular, hey, we're going to have this big service, and Samuel, I want you to preach. That's why we did this. And we're going to have a lot of things. A lot of people are going to be there. This is going to be a great thing for God. And so he says, I'm going to offer a sacrifice. Now listen, you know what a sacrifice when you offer animals like that is? It's called a peace offering in Leviticus. And you know what happens? The peace offering is offered to the animals, and all the best parts of the meat go to the people, and those in charge. So was he really going to have something great for God? No. It was going to be for him. 
So finally, finally, in verses 21 and 22, Saul finally agrees that he did the wrong thing. He kept the best of the animals. He wants to have this worship service. But he's not convinced that he wasn't doing it for the right motives. See, someone would say, maybe here this morning, say, I know I spend too much money on myself, Pastor Walker. I do buy a lot of stuff probably that I don't need. But I do give money to the church as well. You know that, right? You know, okay, okay, okay. I cheat on my taxes, but I do help poor people. Yes, I have a horrible temper, and I can go from zero to 60 in a matter of seconds, but I provide a really good life for my kids and my wife. Okay, I don't really serve at church. I'm not involved in ministry. I really come and sit in a pew, and that's about all I do. But listen, Pastor Walker, I sit in that pew a lot. And when I'm in that pew, I pray. And we think that we can cover up the truths that we know are wrong in our lives by religiosity. Elizabeth Elliot, if you've ever read her writing, she's very good. And she writes about a time in her own life as a child when she was growing up. And she said that all the children, and they had a lot of children, they didn't have a lot of money, so the things that they played with wouldn't be what the average child would pay for. But they had a bunch of sacks that they kept underneath the kitchen sink. And she said all the children were allowed to go and play with them whenever they wanted. The only rule was that whatever you took out, you had to put back. And she said one day, her brother Tommy went there. He was kind of bored. So he went in there and got a number of those sacks out from under the kitchen sink. And he was playing with them and having a great time. And then he got, got bored with it and left them all laying out on the floor. So his parents came in and saw the mess and all the bags all over the place. And they said, Tommy, you get in here right now. And he says, Mom, I can't because when I got done with that, I'm playing the piano. And I'm playing hymns for Jesus. And his dad said this, and I quote, No use singing to Jesus when you're being disobedient. Get in here. Did you hear the words of verse 23? To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better. You see, how can that be true? Didn't God make the sacrificial system? Didn't God put it into place? Doesn't God command the people to sacrifice? Yes, but here's the truth. See, God says, I don't want the external if it doesn't come with the internal. See, so I don't want your trappings of total commitment if it doesn't come from a heart that is totally committed to me, see? See, that's the competing voice to the voice of God. See, it's your own voice. See, you're telling yourself, and you're listening to yourself, and the voice that you listen to will be the voice that you live by. So the first competing voice to the voice of God is the voice of self, but the second one is the voice of others. Did you see it in the text in verses 22 and 24? Verse 21 says, here's how he starts out. Ready? He's confronted, he, and here's what Samuel has does. He's pinned him in a corner, and he knows that he's found out. So he says, but the people. See how he starts verse 21? But the people. And then verse 24, okay, finally, I have sinned, and here's why. I feared the people, hear me, and obeyed their voice. So it's not just his own voice. That was a competing voice with the voice of God. It was the voice of other people. See, he made his second voice choice. Do you remember when 
Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God, and all the people were down at the foot of the mountain, and Aaron was down there, and Moses comes back, and he looks down and he sees the people are being immoral and ungodly, worshiping this golden calf. And he confronts Aaron, who's his older brother, and says, what's going on? I'm gone 40 days, and this is what happens. And here's what Aaron says. You know that people are bent on evil. And then he says, well, how did the calf come out then? He goes, well, they put all the stuff in the gold in there, and it just came out. Can I tell you this? When we are willing to listen to the voice of others over the voice of God, you know what form it sometimes takes? Blame shifting. That we blame somebody else for the choices. You know why? Because we still don't want to believe that we did that or we said that. See, Saul was partially committed. He wanted to do the things that God wanted him to do selectively. Has that ever been you? You know, God, I know, read my Bible. I'm good with that. I pray, yeah, I'm good with that. I can't give money. here. But then God says, do this, and then this, and then this. And I want, see, I want you to be totally committed to you. I don't want you just to have the trappings. I don't want it just to look that way. I don't want you to do things to impress people. See, but in the end, King Saul, at best, at best, was only partially committed to God. And it was his downfall. One of the marks of listening to the voice of others instead of God shows up when you value their opinion over his. We delight in the acceptance of others more than the acceptance of God. And that wasn't a problem in his day because that's what all the other kings did. That's what all the other people of the nations did. See, the kings of the other nations, they gave their people what they wanted. If their people said this and they could do it and keep them, see, they would do that. And here's what Paul began, Saul began to do. He began to define himself like other people did, secular people did. And here's how. His military victories, that's what was important. And the number of soldiers, see in verse 4, he starts counting how many military men he has. And therefore, he has to keep up his popularity, his political popularity. And see, those things begin to define who King Saul is. It's like the people who get on Facebook and Twitter, right? And they say things, and they respond to people, and they put pictures of themselves, and think, you put all this stuff on there that they know are not acceptable to God. Why then do they do it? Why do they do it on a regular basis? Why would they show themselves wearing those clothes? Why would they use that kind of language and then say that they're a Christian? Why would they talk like that? Well, the reason is, is they're listening to the voice of others. And what other people say, whether it's their friends, or whether it's their peers, or whether it's their co-workers, or whether it's their family members... See, they're more interested in what they say and whether they will like it and whether they'll be accepted by that group than they are anybody else's. See, here's what the text says. You can't be totally committed to God and totally committed to yourself and others at the same time. So we have people who cannot disappoint their professors in school and so they knowingly cheat. Because what their professor thinks about them and the grades they get and what that means for their career is more important even in the voice of God. And we have young people today who cannot disappoint their coaches. 
And so they will be at practices and go to games, even if that marginalizes and pushes God to the very periphery of their life where he's just tokenly in their lives. Why? Because they've listened to the voice of others about what matters most. And we do it in the form of listening to girlfriends and boyfriends who lead us into compromise and bosses who want us to work overtime so we can gain money and we forget all about our relationships with our family and our wives and our children. And the reason is because the voice that you listen to is the voice that you live by. You can't fear God, as Saul found out, and fear people at the same time. So why does Saul do it, Pastor Walker? Why do I do it? (laughs) Why do I, on a regular basis, listen to the voice of myself, listen to the voice of others, and I tune out the voice of God way too often? What is the root problem? And I'll tell you this, it's plain in the passage, it's pride. Do you know what the verse verse 12 says? That when Saul was looking for Samuel... He was going by and he found out that before he found Saul, that in another place, Saul had recently made a monument to himself. Can you imagine? He set up a statue, perhaps, of himself or something that he did. It was some sort of memorial or monument so that everybody would know that Saul was really that cool, that good. And so when Samuel comes and starts asking Saul's questions that he doesn't want to answer... He starts saying to this, then why did you pounce on the spoil, verse 19? See, he's driving home. It's not just what Saul did, it's why he did it that matters. And Samuel says, you know why? I want you to come up with the answer. Why did you pounce on the spoil? And the word pounce means to attack with intense vigor and screaming while you do it. That's literally what the word means. I mean, he is intense about this. This is what drives Saul. See, it's what he is on the inside that's driving him to say things and do things to get people's acceptance, to think that he's great. It's what moves him to do it. So why did he spare Agag? Why would he do that? You know why? Because it makes him look powerful. See, he is a more powerful king than the king of the Amaleks, right? Amalekites. Why did he keep the plunder when God told him not to? Because it made him rich. Why did he build a monument? Because everybody would think he's great. And at the same time, he could, seek, he could continue to seek to convince himself that he was great. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you do them? For Saul, it was this problem. He began to have his identity defined by it. Instead of finding his greatness in God, he tried to find it in his own greatness apart from God or trying to convince other people that he was great. In other words, the voices Saul listened to were the voices Saul lived by. See, if God is your identity this morning and you get your greatness from your relationship with him, none of the other voices can get to you. On the flip side, if your identity, where you get your greatness from, is not from God, you will get it somewhere else. If you are not great in God's eyes, you will be great in your own eyes, and you will seek to be great in the eyes of others. 
If God is not your source of greatness, something will take his place. It could be academics. It could be sports. It could be how good you look, how strong and muscular your body is, how much money you make, the things that you have. Can I go back and close with that illustration? You remember the dad? See, if being a dad and being a parent is what your identity comes from, and that's where you get your greatness, see, then you will always have to be building monuments in honor to yourself. And this dad just did it through his son. He had athletic ability, unmatched athletic ability, or maybe it's a daughter that has unbelievable academic prowess, unbelievable educational attainments. See, that dad couldn't handle it when the principal or the teacher or anyone at the school infringed on that because it jeopardizes his greatness. So he couldn't accept info. See, not because he didn't know it, because he didn't want to know it. And neither will you, and neither will I. You're going to live a life always trying to prove your greatness to somebody including yourself. You see, Saul and Samuel were not the only contrast because Saul was small, little in his own eyes, verse 17, and he became great. Small, he became big. See, Jesus, he was big and became small. See, that's, that's what we're to be as Christians. That's why Jesus says, hear my voice, And when you hear my voice, you will follow me. And the greatest thing in your life that really gives you greatness is not your academic or your sports achievements or your career or your money or the initials behind your name or all the things that you can successfully gain in this world. Jesus says, it will be your likeness to me. If you hear my voice, you will follow me. But we live in a culture, we are inundated with all kinds of alternative voices. And again, the question for you and I this morning as God's people is this. Whose voice are we listening to? Because the voice you listen to will be the voice you live by. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, and we're going to close with a song in just a moment. Total commitment, that's what we're looking for. Do you know total commitment equals total obedience? It does. Partial obedience will always result in partial commitment at best. And you're here as a believer this morning, and you'd say, Pastor Walker, that's me. I've made the wrong voice choice, and I'm still making it. And I know where it's taking me. It's taking me down roads that Saul went down. I see what it's doing. I see what having to be accepted and get everybody's attention. And, and, and I see the pride that's working in my life. And the voice choice I'm making is destroying me and also diminishing my commitment to a God who is worthy. This morning, by his grace, I want to humble myself Seek God's forgiveness for the pride. And I want to be totally committed. I want to say that
the voice I listen to is God's. And that's the voice I'm going to live by. If that's true for you, so I can pray for you as we close, would you just, with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just slip your hand up? Thank you. And put it back down. Thank you. Balcony, main floor, numerous hands. Say, Pastor Walker, I want to listen to God's voice. I want to live by that. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we have heard your voice today. And I pray that we would not only hear it, but we would heed it. That we wouldn't be just hearers of your word, as James says, but doers. I pray for those who raised their hand this morning, indicating they want to forsake the pride. Confess and forsake it, that they may know your mercy, according to Proverbs. And I pray that you would pour out and lavish on them your love and mercy today. That your voice would be what they listen to. That your voice from your word would be what they live by. Help them because those voice choices are not going to be easy and it may completely disrupt and change the trajectory of their lives and that would be what exactly is needed. And I pray, God, that you'll give them the courage to fear you and not fear others, to not listen to the voice of self and let self-deception continue to deceive them. But the truth would win out in their lives as they yield and surrender to you. Be glorified in that, O Lord, as you are worthy of. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May we-